Welcome to the Lift Ed podcast coming to you today from the studio in Homestead, the creative work facility in the historic Alberta Block Building, formerly home to CKUA. I'm Eric Ammon, and with me as usual is my co-host, Scott McKean. Thanks, Eric. Uh, I'm really excited about today's uh, podcast and our guest, Tim Adams. Uh, there, We have dealt with a number of them, but there are so many complex social issues in our world today requiring massive, if not generational, effort in an attempt to solve them. But about 15 years ago, Tim Adams found an elegant answer to one of these issues, helping at-risk kids from financially struggling families. The program Tim developed was then called Free Footy, but was rebranded Free Play. I, I have a question about that. Those were our words to describe the kids that are in in the program. How how what is the descriptor used for those those kids who uh, who benefit from what was free footy? Kids. <laughs> That's about it. I just say kids now, and uh, I'll be transparent about it too. Like when you're trying to build an organization, you live in this space of like, in some ways, preying on people's. Um, dignity to get money out of people and it's popular to say at risk and it's popular to say marginalized and it's popular to say vulnerable and I'm uh, one of the people who did it and I always had to sort of justify in my brain of like is this a reasonable thing to say but it's how people open their wallets and I've tried to now intentionally make the turn past that and to stop using that kind of language and obviously I still have to from time to time to truly explain what we do and how we do it um, but trying to just call kids kids and call families families and um, not talk so much about, you know, the state that they're in and focus more on who they can be. Yeah. So Free Play originated as Free Footy. That's how I got to know you yeah, and yeah. got to know the program. Uh, how did it come about? Like, what's the, what's the origin story to that led to this place? Well, Free Footy started... Um, about 2007, when I was a journalist for CBC and I went to do a story at a school about a junk food ban that was coming in place at uh, Edmonton Public Schools. And uh, I went to this one school who already had a junk food ban because they had to ensure the kids who were at that school were eating healthy because they weren't eating regular meals. And the school was Macaulay School, which was then and now is closed, but then and for a very long time was coded as the quote unquote highest need school in the city. And so I was doing the story with the principal and I had just moved to Edmonton and I had played a lot of sport and been good at it, not great, at it, but good enough at it to pass at decent levels and wanted to give back now that I'd moved to a new city and had been calling around different clubs and provincial associations and not kind of really finding what I wanted to do, which is to give the game back, the game of, of footy, of soccer. And so that was talking to the principal a little bit about this and like, well, look out the window. And so there was a whole group of kids out there playing classic barefoot football where, you know, their hips hang low and their heels hit their butt on every single stride. And it's just like dancing out there. Like you, you'd picture in a movie, dust flying everywhere. I'm like, wow, who are these kids? Just like, that's your team. And that kind of is where it all started. And I could go into that for a very long time, but that was a junior high age group. And so I coached them. Um, and the one of the main challenges we found if folks who've, served in this space is if you're junior high in a 
newcomer family or um, trying to get your roots in Edmonton, you're often responsible for your little brothers and sisters. And that's a generalization, but it happens quite a bit. Like you're the eldest and you're responsible while mom or dad or parent or guardian is out working. So um, if we wanted them to play after school, we had to find a solution for the little brothers and sisters. And I was like, I don't know, because I'd run out onto a field with 100 people. <laughs> like I was that guy that would have 18 kids on the on the on the bench and you know ready to play and then there'd be another 90 on the sidelines like running around and causing chaos so that led to making a team for the little guys and girls but the brothers and sisters and in Edmonton there's school sport at the junior high level so we were competing in the junior high school system but nothing at the elementary level so I had a team but I didn't know where for them to play so I asked a few more schools in the neighborhood like hey you want to play we had four teams and then eight teams and then 16, 26. And I think it capped out at 64 schools, two teams per school and four different sports, soccer, hockey, basketball, and flag football. I think the biggest season had 5,500 kids. There's a photo of the final tournament one year and there was more people at that than there was at an FC Edmonton game for the grade uh, six final. So it was, yeah, pretty wild. No kidding. Wild indeed. And that's that's the free footy version. And now it's... Now it's free play. Yeah. You made that sound like that was the peak amount of kids. What are you at today? Like how many teams in how many sports and how many kids? Yeah. And well, the organization has changed a lot since then when it was, I was primarily focused on access and I still think access is good. Um, but we would do a day a week of programming. You know, you do September and October was ball hockey then. November and December is indoor soccer and the seasons would rotate and schools would come one day a week. Um, but I wasn't really, I guess, getting at what I wanted to get at, which was not just access, but care. And I've always had this idea of combining the recreation and childcare together so that parents aren't running around all over the place in the evenings trying to take their kids places when they already need somewhere for childcare after school. Just which is, like, I want to cut you off yeah. there quickly because <clears throat> I think that's the next, I think that's a really fascinating part of this whole story. But I wanted to ask you, first of all, let's get Alfonso Davies out of the way. He is often, I know he's been associated with Free Footy mm-hmm. um, and that's a cool story. And it's great that this kid from Edmonton is playing for Bayern Munich and scored the first goal uh, or the, maybe the only goal for Team Canada and the World Cup. But that's, but and, and as we can all maybe take some pride in that from Edmonton, mm-hmm. that's not the reason for free footy then and, and now free play, right? No, yeah, no, it's not. I mean, I'm proud of what Alfonso is doing on a world scale, but do I have anything to do with it? Absolutely not. Like, I know his name gets tied to playing a tiny season with free footy at some point in his life, but... There's a lot of other people who took care of him um, and helped him get to where he is, as well as him just having the, that skill set and mind to do it. Like the mind to do that is absolutely incredible, yeah, incredible. And yeah, going back to where I was speaking is that's a diversion and a distraction of what I was really attempting to do, which was to create safe spaces for kids and that their families could trust. So the program evolved from being a day a week to being every single day. So now the program has fewer kids, but it's the same kids who come every day. And the four sports still exist, soccer, hockey, basketball, uh, and flag football. 
but they do those one of the days of the week, and then the fifth day is a tournament day. So every single day of the week, bell rings after school, they roll into the gym, our staff are there, we run the program. So now all of a sudden, it has achieved what it was trying to achieve, which is the doubling of childcare and recreation in one shot. And the layer that we've added to it is the is the curriculum, which is kind of the bedrock of the whole program. I've also been trying to chip away at it for a very long time and got lucky to, you know, have someone come into my life and work with us who had their master's in coaching, genius person, and have now developed a curriculum that's based on social emotional learning through play. So we often talk about how sport elicits these skills of respect and leadership and teamwork and all these kinds of things and buzzwords that everybody likes to say. But I can tell you of being in very many environments, especially high-performance ones and grassroots ones, there aren't any coaches who have practice plans to actually deal with those things. And it's drove me nuts forever. So we flipped it, and now we have practice plans that 80% of the practice plan focuses on social-emotional learning and mental health via play, not the other way around. Could you give an example of that? Well, like, well, every day, so we have a, a team chat group and every day there's a message that goes out on the topic of the day and then there's a practice plan that the coaches would implement in these sessions. So a, a good one is like regulating your emotions. So we would have skills and, and games and activities and we don't do drills. We do games and activities that would elicit someone, a child, to get frustrated and then teach them how to cool down. Um, so... Every single day, there's a different curriculum piece that is eliciting these emotions and then via play and then teaching kids how to take a message away from it. Because the end goal is to take what you learned here after school in this program and then apply it to school and to life, right? Like, who cares about the sports stuff? Like, that's it's a byproduct. It's going to happen. There's going to be more amazing, awesome humans that come out of this program. There already is. And there'll be some of those high-performance kind of athletes too. But it, that's not the reason. And the reason that they will get there is because of if actually the emotional work that's happening, not the technical, tactical work that's happening. Technical, tactical is actually, again, coach people would disagree with me, but fairly easy compared to the emotional competencies that are required to perform in a high performance space anywhere, right? Whether that's politics or engineering or being a doctor or being on a field court or rink, like it's the emotional competencies you need to control yourself in high pressure situations. And so that's what these kids are being taught. And at the heart of it, that's what your 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 goal is. So the difference between free play and me me being part of an organized uh, sport, organized soccer is that, is that yeah. I'm, you're trying to manif- help me become an amazing person, whereas the, the other sport is just trying to teach me how to run down the field faster, or yes. hit the open player. Yeah, and I think, I think lots of people do do that. I don't, also don't want to disparage against the whole industry of, of sport or, uh, or recreation in general because I think it's the same between dance and music and it's, it's pretty much drama. It's, it's the same kind of anything that has a group activity. Um, I think people are, are trying to do those. It's the intentionality, though. We put dedicated intentionality behind it. Of Yes, I on a field, lots of coaches are talking about respect and are talking about teamwork and are talking about leadership, but is there a curriculum behind it that's intentionally designing those moments? And I think that would be what separates the program apart. Yeah, it almost sounds like in, in, in your effort... Um, 
uh, high performance athletics would be a beneficial side effect for a few. Oh, yeah. like a and, and, and if you flip that around in organized sport, knowing that, and I wrote about this at some point when I was at the journal, the majority of kids drop out of organized mm-hmm. sport by age 12. Mm-hmm. So them developing those character traits that um, we all want to see the leadership and the mm-hmm. confidence and, mm-hmm. and teamwork and all this stuff. That's a side effect that uh, is perhaps not the reason for the sport, but it happens with some kids, yeah. but yeah. 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 So the program has now evolved to the core kind of flagship program, if I would say is called, so we're called free play for kids. That program is called free to play and it's based out of 24 elementary schools every single day. So we send staff to the elementary school. Some one staff starts quite early at about one thirty to get things moving. And then two other staff will join around three. As soon as the bell rings, the program kicks into place. They have a snack, they do the lesson of the day, and then at 5, 5.30, they're off back home. And that happens every day. Thursday's in that program because Edmonton is this unique <laughs> space with early dismissal, which I hadn't experienced growing up in Ontario, but it's a real challenge for anyone who's a, a caregiver, knowing that of your kids get out sometimes at 11 o'clock or, or 2 o'clock. So we start earlier on those days and we pick the kids up Um, from their school and bus them to one of four different rec centers uh, in in little regions. So like, you know, six schools go to region A and six schools go to region B and then they play a little tournament against each other. And at the tournaments, it's a longer day. We also do a nutritional literacy class. So they're rotating through their games for the tournament and then they come off to the side where we have a dietitian who's on staff with us who runs a full meal program where they sit down with the recipe of the day. Our coaches have been coached on it too by our dietitian. They have the recipe of the day and the kids learn how to make the recipe of the day. And then at the end of Thursday, they go home with a hamper plus that recipe and any of the tools they might need so they can make that recipe at home for themselves or for their family. And again, we, we try to use a little bit of the sports stuff, not a lot of it, but you know, like there, there's the touch point to talk about nutrition and why it's important. Mm-hmm. I don't think any of the kids truly honestly care about that. They're just <laughs> excited about making avocado toast or something. Um, but we also really focus on those recipes being extremely inclusive. They're essentially a se- assembly because we don't assume that people have the, th- the tools at home to make stuff. So we don't assume a kid has a toaster or a microwave or oven or is allowed to use an oven or all those kind of things. So the recipes are assembly. And then that would sort of be the the bedrock program. And we can get into all, all the others, but that's the big one. I'm trying to get in my mind the scope and scale of free play. Mm-hmm. How many schools? There's 24 elementary schools. And then we run uh, another program more targeted to junior high, high school kid and kids. And there's uh, 12 like quote unquote competitive teams. And we can talk about that in a second. And then there's another program that we partner directly with Catholic Social Services to support new refugees. And we pick them up in the day and do programs with them in the daytime. It's pretty it's pretty big now. <laughs> no, it, <it's laughs> no one really knows about it. <laughs> it. It's incredible. Like to go, you're volunteering to coach a team to this program that is integral to shaping a generation mm-hmm. of Edmontonians. Like that's, that's unbelievable. What do you think is the biggest challenge? Not funding. Uh, we know that. <laughs> is, uh, Can I just say funding that? again? <laughs> no. 
from a programmatic <laughs> position, like from in terms of your programming, is it is it the logistics? Is it is it you know kids? What what what, the, what do you find is, is sort of the big programmatic challenge you have? Because you're trying to do this yep. incredible thing yep. uh, that not doesn't exist anywhere else. I think in the country. No, nope. and so you're trailblazing. But what's what are the hurdles you're you're encountering when it comes to like the program delivery? Yeah, they probably they evolve, which I would imagine would be anyone's answer in this kind of situation. So outside of funding, <laughs> I had to say that it, it used to be facilities. We couldn't, where are we going to put this thing? And then we kind of knocked that off and um, really knocked it off in a big way uh, last year when um, we really pushed this policy of the youth after school initiative, where now rec centers, a core number of rec centers are open for free after school for agencies like ours. And... uh, I think, I don't know, I don't want to take all the credit for it, but a lot of, large part of that was me arguing for a very long time of like, why aren't these places free after school as with a number of other agencies? So that started to help with rec space. Um, then the, the school boards have um, come up with MOUs for us that we can use the schools for free. So that strike that out a bit. Then the next one was transportation because we were busing kids because we didn't have anywhere to go. So we had to bus kids every single day. But now that we can base it out of the school and we've got some free rec center space, the transportation one is kind of, it's still a, definitely a challenge, but not as big. The most prominent challenge now would be staffing. So uh, the folks that run the program, since we have to run it every single day, are our staff. But the main shift is that sort of 3.30, 3 o'clock to 5.30 window, which is a very tough time to employ people. Um, often ends up being students, which is awesome, but students' schedules change regularly, right? Based on the classes and where they land. So you get quite a transient nature of workforce and that is challenging. That's really, really challenging is to find staff who, not because they don't want to be there, but because their schedules allow them to be there. We've tried lots of different combinations of things of stacking programs, you know, create a program in the daytime or in the evening so someone could have a full-time job. And that sort of worked and not quite worked. Um, so yeah, I would say the staffing thing is finding the people to keep it moving. Um, not from a values perspective. I think everyone that shows up aligns with the values. It's honestly just the schedule. It's such a tough schedule to run an after-school, primarily after-school-based program. I, w- I want to ask you about this later and in case anybody wanted to donate. Uh, but if anybody wanted to volunteer or apply mm-hmm. for one of those positions. Yeah. Where do they find you online? Freeplayforkids.com. Freeplayforkids.com. Yep. Thanks. And you were a kid one. I think so. <laughs> Don't you feel like a, it right you're, now. But. You were also a, you were also a journalist. <laughs> Not in this exact moment, I mean no. in life. <laughs> you, you were also a journalist and I I thought I knew journalists as being sort of self-absorbed egotists. They are. Uh, and yeah, me, no, me, me, they're not, you know, that fitting that, fitting that quite well. Anyways, um, which makes you a really interesting study for me. And <laughs> as a journalist, I'm always interested in why people behave the way they do. So I did want to ask you, mm-hmm. um, you've taken on this Herculean challenge and you were with the CBC. You could be having a probably... A nice, easy, oh, I don't want to make it. You could have an easier life 
working hard, but evenings and weekends off or something, most of them. Pension? Pension. <laughs> Those uh, things. <laughs> so why, why, what, what was it about you, your upbringing, the values that were passed on to you, whatever it was, uh, maybe you were playing sports and a coach taught you something. What happened along the way that made you go, I really want to do this? I don't truly know the answer to that question. Um, and I would probably have to talk for a very long time to, to unpack it. Well, um, I have but, a couch. Are, <laughs> come over and sit on the couch here. Yes. Well, this, yeah. Um, I don't, I, I, uh, yeah, I don't know how to really get at the root answer to that. I think um, I always give a very stock answer to lots of people about like my three P's of passion, patience, and persistence. And I've really drove into that of you have to have the passion for something and which is what we're trying to get at the passion for something to want to get up and do it and like be always fired up um and the patience to know is not going to happen on your clock which juxtaposes against persistence of keeping going and i've kind of used those three p's a lot for me like i you know i go through tons of struggles trying to run an organization that serves 5,000 people in different spaces that quite frankly gets not a fair shake when it comes to funding. I'm not going to go there right now. We can go to funding. We'll go yeah, to yeah, funding. yeah. But um, y yeah, so the, there's a lot of stress, but also, also a lot of stress of taking care of people who aren't taken care of. And you see a lot that um, I wasn't classically trained to see and, and have to personally deal with. So I guess that's kind of my stock answer is like I've found a way to keep coming back to those three Ps. But, um, you know, I, as a kid, I, I wasn't a great kid. I wasn't a terrible kid, but not a great kid. Was good, not great at sport. Always found a place to sort of exist in there and excel in there and anything that I did. Um, and would always sort of level back to it and had a few right mentors who were able to teach me the skill sets from that environment to apply elsewhere. Like no one ever thought I would graduate high school, not even close. Uh, teachers and principals would tell me to quit like on the daily. It's <laughs> just like, what are you doing here? This is a waste of your time. And it was the right people who sort of mentored that process. But at the same time, being good at something means people t often will take, uh, take advantage of what you're good at. And when you're young, I, I did get taken advantage in different ways by different coaches and different, you know, people in that athletic space. And so as I got older, it was sort of about mm, trying to build the good and kick out the bad, I guess is where it came from and why I keep going. I think it's, you know, it's a little bit of the three Ps and chip on your shoulder and some ego, right, of people constantly telling you can't do it. I've been told I can't do this since day one, <laughs> like everybody's told me can't do that or, for whatever reason. And I don't know, I'm kind of one of those people who needs people to tell them they can't do it, which is the reverse of what maybe normal psychology is. Is like, I like, I like that kind of conflict. It's what drives me, right? It's like, oh, you can't do that. Yeah, I can. And I'll just keep going and going and figuring out a way. And the, I guess the difference is lots of people say that, but you have to be willing to wear it in perpetuity 
that's the challenge. So it's like, can you actually get knocked down thousands of times and get up? Which again, sounds like a cliche, but for 15 years, I've kind of done it. I guess that's where it is. And uh, every day I think about stopping. I do. I'm not going to lie. Every day I wake up and I'm like, oh, I don't know if I can do this another day. And then here we are. I, I love it. I love when people say I can't do something like it's, yeah, it's the greatest motivator. It's unnerving when people think you can do something uh, like in poverty. It's unnerving that some people yeah. think that that's you can do that. Yeah, uh, we'll talk funding. Uh, <laughs> here's my theory on funding. Uh, money chases good ideas. And I do think that free play is validating that belief that money chases good ideas. I know as an executive director, you're always looking for where you want to go yeah. and sometimes fail to look backward to see how far you've come. And mm-hmm. I think knowing this program from pretty yes. early days, yeah. uh, having actually your your former executive director works at End Poverty Edmonton now, yep. uh, it is a remarkable journey. And I do think that money is going to chase those good ideas. I know you've got, uh, you've got more things you want to do, mm-hmm. but let's talk about those good ideas because I think that's, that's the driver behind uh, being appropriately funded uh, one yep. day. Uh, and so how do you know, how do you know you're doing what you're setting out to do? Like how, how do you know that you're, you're helping to shape these great people? Um, like most of, most of that is from the anecdotal evidence from the families, right? Of the, the day-to-day interaction with kids and families and all the people that we're taking care of and the feedback. Then there's the, the, the evaluation metrics we, we try to put in place, which is also a very hard thing to master as evaluation because it changes what people want on the daily on every single grant. It seems to shift. So we've, we've got good at collecting that data. Um, and I think that data validates what we're doing, but just the, the day-to-day feedback from, from kids and families and knowing those spaces that are created and then those really high tension moments when you're having interactions with children and family services and police and the justice system and all those things and knowing how much prevention has happened or how many phone calls that you've stopped from having, you know, uniformed officers show up and massive crisis intervention just because there was a space created. And we know that because we experience it weekly, right? Um, And then we're trying to get better at that evaluation side. So we we survey kids and families every six weeks on a sort of matrix of questions, mostly related to grants that are existing, but then there's the ones that we kind of bedrock want to understand um, of why we do what we do. So we track that. Um, then we use something to evaluate, which I was trying to explain to Scott. We use a high five standard, which is a big standard out of the Eastern Canada and slowly coming West, but it really evaluates um, how well we do on creating environments, not so much on what the activity is. Like it's not, did you ping the ball from here to here well, or did you play the piano perfectly? It's about how well did we do as creating an environment that's safe and inclusive and welcoming so kids can can learn essentially. And so that's actually has a quantitative scoring to it. And we have someone that goes and evaluates each of the, the sessions or each of the program sites four times a year. So that gives us some of that sort of statistical evidence and also evidence for us to say, oh, it's, it's not quite on or it's not quite quite there. Um, and then layered on top of that would be the board. So the board of directors obviously meets once a month and um, they don't really get sucked into the um, operations side and stays governance and is trying to push a bit further to be more generational. But that's also a check and balance too. 
did that get you what are your yeah I, I mean that's kind of a stock answer that you'd probably hear all the time too but. yeah uh, you know what you're right like you you read something in my face which is like that I want to know about the feedback like I want to hmm. I want to feel attacked I want to I want to I want a sense of what's what's happening what what that actually is and I know like there's lots of great metrics and yeah and you've got you know graphs pointing in the right direction and all of those great things mm-hmm. but I think it's a program where again like you're you want you're, you're you've got this goal of creating great people you've got the mm-hmm. goal of using using sport and the enthusiasm that kids have for for sport to do things like make a healthy meal I mean yeah. how do you know like how how do you you, you you look like you sleep relatively well. Like I, I it's got to be because you feel like this is making a difference. And I, mm. I, you know, rather than the academic answer, I, I'm curious about those anecdotes. You know, yeah. what are you hearing that's that's validating what you're trying to do? Mm. Uh, yeah, I'm trying to like think of a really good encapsulating story. I mean, you know, maybe it's not a perfect story of a kid, and I could do that, but maybe a really good one is actually. During the height of COVID, we partnered with Catholic Social Services because um, they were providing care to all the Afghan families that arrived in Edmonton. And so they would be locked in quarantine hotels. And we may worked really closely um, with Catholic Social Services to figure out ways like, how do we get them out of their hotel room when they're not allowed to get out of their hotel room? And we figured it out. And we got permission from the various orders of government to get them out. And so we started running a transportation system from the hotels to the rec centers and with our staff to get the kids out to play. And it was primarily thought about of like, okay, we need to get kids out of this hotel room. There's 15, 20 people in one hotel room and they've been stuck there for literally a month and couldn't get them out of the room. Um, and then that turned to, well, the parents are waiting too. And the parents were like, and guardians, excuse me. Um, well, we want to play too. So then we started <laughs> running another bus for the parents and guardians. And then that turned into, um, once they got settled into their quote unquote permanent housing here, we opened a school site specifically because that's where most of the kids had moved to. Then that school site, we trained the staff from the Afghan community to run it. Then we opened a men's and women's soccer team to keep the parents engaged. So there's like this very linear trajectory of like folks just landed here, they're stuck. We got them into programming. Then we opened schools with our program. Well, not open the school, obviously, but open school sites with our program where all those families are relocated, created programs for the parents, guardians, and caregivers to stay connected, then employed those folks back to run the program. And like, I don't think you can get much better evidence than full cycle example of that, which that program now reaches 300 families a month and has been running for three years. Right, entirely funded by um, Jumpstart by Canadian Tire, and yeah. no government support. That's that's I think that that's what we as a community that that's how we do something like end poverty is. Yeah, it's not it's not for you to figure out. It's the rec centers to figure something out. It's the three orders of government to figure out how to move to allow people to move around. Yeah, you know you're facilitating this, but you're you're having mental health outcomes. You're having mm-hmm. people who have better Canadian resumes like. There's countless positivity that comes out of that, but it's it's a community coming together to do something, not just looking to you to say, solve this problem. Yeah. You know, but but help us solve this problem. For sure. Totally. A couple of things I wanted to ask, but first of all, I think you told me the other day that 
there's financial benefit to the families as well because mm-hmm. normally they'd be paying for a lot of them to be paying for after school care. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think you folks would know this really well from the work that you're trying to do on advocating for childcare and how important that is. Like having free childcare is a $1,500 bump, right? Like per month, no question. So now all of a sudden, and then add into the registration fees that you might be paying if you wanted to get your kids into an activity. That's another thousand bucks a month. So you've got a $2,500 bump which means you can put that into your basic needs, right? Like it goes into shelter, it goes into food, it goes into clothing. And it, again, it's not anecdotally. People tell us this directly that now they've managed to stay in their house because they don't have to worry about rent and they don't have to worry about paying for food and they don't have to worry about the cost of clothing because they can actually somewhat not afford, but they're in a bit more of an income stable place, not worrying about childcare and not worrying about the social pressure, oh, if my kid's not in the activities that all the other kids are. So it, it has that knock-on effect, which I know, again, sounds very like, I guess, intangible. Oh, kicking a ball leads to housing security, but I will challenge anyone who tries to challenge me on that one because I'm right. And I've seen it thousands of times per year. And I think that's something we have to talk about a lot more is how do those spaces give that bigger radial impact. When we look at the impact on one kid, we know the radial impact is at least 10 more people, right? Between family, auntie, grandma, friends, right? Like that, it's, it's a ginormous. So if we're impacting 3,000 people through programming, we're more likely affecting 30,000 people. We're not more likely, we are affecting 30,000. And I, I think the thing that I would add to that, that uh, you didn't specifically say was, when you're not stressing about paying for food or paying mm-hmm. the rent, like the temperature in the household comes dramatically totally. down. You know, you can invest your time and energy not in stressing and straining about those things, but helping with homework. You know, yep. like the sort of payoff becomes infinite when money becomes less of a concern. Yep. No, yeah, you're totally right. Like the, the, the mental health value as well of having security is probably more valuable than the monetary value. Yeah. How come this program isn't known uh, across the country or like it, I, I think if you did a survey of Edmontonians, there might be a healthy percentage who have heard of it, but I, I don't know. I just think this should be a really well-known program that's being duplicated across the country, well-funded by whether it's school boards and municipalities with support from the province, mm-hmm. like Really, is it, I guess, 15 years, 16 years, you could say it's still in its infancy compared to the Boys and Girls Club or yep. that sort of thing. So maybe that's all I'm really yeah. seeing. What do you think? No, I, I think you're right. I think it's, you know, it was a volunteer passion project for me up until four years ago. Um, and I actually think Free Footy had probably more branding power than Free Play did when we've turned to more of a social purpose with Free Play. Um, and that's probably related to also just being extremely busy. Yeah. Really, really busy. I don't do this stuff much anymore because I'm actually very self-conscious about it now. Of, I sort of mm, kind of built a brand of free footy on my image as well when I was a journalist and had lots of public exposure. And then I got kind of uncomfortable with that because I really didn't want to make it about me. I've tried very, very hard to not put myself out there so much that it 
all of a sudden becomes about Tim because I'm trying very hard not to do that. Mm. And wrestling with how to do that, right? Like big brands usually do rely on CEO power to showcase their brand, but I'm trying to flip it so that it's the community and our staff and the families that are the showcase and the piece that are invested in. And I think that's, that's uh, it's a hard turn to make, right? Um, so we've been trying to make that. And then, like you say, uh, there's lots of great institutions and organizations in the city who've, you know, are mul- truly multinational corporations that have been around for 100 years, right? Like we are the thing that started 15 years ago, really four years ago. Mm. Um, but I, I would agree with you. I think we don't talk enough about social exports. We talk a lot about other exports, especially in this province, but we don't talk about social exports and social innovation. I would say that free play is a very strong example of social innovation that is worthy of higher investment from municipal, provincial, and federal dollars or corporate dollars to say, hey, like this thing works. It's a social innovation. It could actually drive revenue if it was tweaked in certain ways and it should be done in different places. And it's a Canadian, Edmonton, Alberta-made solution to lots of these childcare social space challenges that we have that can be scaled. It might not make money, but it'll certainly save money. Yes. What yes. one would think, yeah. I just, I'm just curious, and I'll throw this at you. We have these major emerging uh, problems of um, polarization. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 communities being divided in all sorts of different ways, a lot of bullying, along with that, some extremism, racism. Do you think your kids, Tim's kids, will come out of this with with attitudes that one would hope would spread about um, neighborly? My personal kids, like my daughter. No, no, I oh. meant uh, I meant free play kids. Oh, free play kids. Okay. Calling them Tim's kids. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> Whether they will, do you think, given what you're trying to do with the program, we'll see some different citizens emerge from this? Oh, 100%. I mean, I, there's a really good example of pride. Like pride, we um, celebrate in a really huge way. We make pride jerseys. Hmm. Pride flag goes on, on all the jerseys. All the kids get one. Um, but when you have lots of different cultures and different communities in a space of free play, that's challenging. It's really challenging. Now, all of a sudden, you're wrestling, you know, religious freedoms, religious rights, um, different cultural values all in that same space together. And that's the beauty of it. Like we're forced in this space to come to terms with it or at least hear each other via, again, playing. Playing created that opportunity to hear each other. And I, I will admit, we don't always all, all agree in those spaces, but we hear each other. And you see it turn with the kids. Like lots of kids won't wear the jersey will not wear because there's lots of different things rightfully so in some cases and feelings about um, the space but eventually they hear it and then they'll meet a kid that they talk to of why it's really important that they wear a pride flag and why they wear a pride flag and how it's important to them and then they start to hear it and they're like oh okay well I can wear that for you there you go so it, it does, and, it, and the same happens in other ways. We talk a lot, a lot, a lot about, you know, in that social emotional learning curriculum, talk a lot about 
different cultural celebrations, different holidays, and try to respect all of them. And kids who would have zero exposure to Ramadan, to Eid, now all of a sudden are talking about it. And we have lesson plans on it. Like, okay, I can now see a different side of the universe, right? That I'm not used to. So 100% those outcomes are happening of meeting people who you wouldn't normally meet, talking with them, and at least hearing them. Maybe if you don't agree with them, you at least hear them because you want to play together. You're on a team. <laughs> so that, it, it does work. That's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, how can people get involved? What, what can we do to help further your endeavor? I think the, yeah, the best way is just hearing about it more. And you can go to the website, the freeplayforkids.com, and there's all kinds of different ways you can volunteer in there, or you can, or there's lots of jobs to, to help out at school sites. Um, but yeah, just more advocacy, the better. You've really taken the, we're not talking about funding to heart. I thought it was like lobbing the softball where you could say, donate ad. Well, I mean, you, you could donate there, but I, I think it's more important to, um, like you both mentioned, of have more people know about it, right? Like they need to know that this thing is happening and see that it's not the sportsy thing. Like it's not that. You don't do the big annual fundraiser, which a lot of groups do? No, not really. No it's like the sponsor a team, sponsor a school, yeah. monthly donations. We're going through a huge drive right now to get our food program funded. We had a big sponsor until the end of September and it just, that sponsorship just ended. So we're trying to find a new sponsor for that program. I mean, that program alone costs $250,000 a year to run, right? Like food for every single kid every week is expensive. <laughs> Um, so there's, there's lots of different ways to get involved. I just welcome you to take a look at the site and send me a message anytime or one of the staff that you see on there or yeah, volunteer. We have events going on constantly that we always need support. Uh, Tim, um, thank you so much for your time. I know how busy you are. Uh, and we deeply appreciate you coming on uh, the Lifted Podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you.